Hi, this is Dr. Sonny Ravencourt of the University of Coruscant. For some reason, Dean Sharona decided that it would be a good idea for me to create what she calls a syllabus and put every blasted lecture on one holophile for you guys to upload to your pads. I, of course, delegated this to a student. I don't remember their name or really what they look like, but they had a UFC Sabre shirt on, so I figured they must be a big fan of my class. Either way, here it is. Maybe. I honestly have no idea whether they did it or not. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached HoloNet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on pre-lightsaber technology. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. You no, you are far too kind. I am honored to have been hired by the prestigious University of Coruscant to teach Galactic History 101. I cannot say that I expected this, but after you've been in a few Holonet dramas, well, I mean, I guess your communicator number is a little bit easier to find. My honorary doctorate, I assure you, is real, but nonetheless, I hope that I'm more than just a pretty face here. I plan on providing you with an excellent review of galactic history. This semester, we are going to be breaking down one of my favorite subjects, class by class, and I am speaking of galactic weaponry. We have a galaxy of weapons at our disposals, from lightsabers to vibro knuckles to thermal detonators to turbo lasers. We are going to attack each show with the enthusiasm that I know you University of Coruscant Sabres are capable of. So without further ado, let's begin. The lightsaber. How can this not be your favorite historical weapon? In the modern galaxy, energy weapons are ubiquitous, particularly blasters. Lightsabers are extremely rare, and I cannot emphasize that enough. With trillions of people in the galaxy, you are pretty unlikely to ever see an activated lightsaber. And unactivated, frankly, you probably won't even notice it. Rarity always makes things historically interesting. Nobody wants to hear the history of sand. It's coarse, and it's rough, and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Very boring. But a colorful laser sword that can deflect energy bolts and melt Dura-steel doors? Well, now we're talking. And then add in the fact that they're only created and wielded by Force users? I am all in. And then add in that they're omnipresent in the most pivotal moments in galactic history? Well, let's just say that your average youngling isn't swinging around a broom pretending that it's a gaffy stick. It is all about lightsabers. So now that you're all excited to talk about lightsabers, guess what? We are not going to talk about lightsabers. No! We're going to get ready to talk about lightsabers by talking about what came before lightsabers, because frankly, that is just as fascinating. 
Then next week, when we do talk about lightsabers, you are going to feel so much smarter having known the history behind it. What a clever ruse to get you to attend class next week. I think Dean Fortuna should already be thinking about giving me a raise. So where did these lightsabers come from? The design of the lightsaber is very complex and frankly, almost impossible for the average person to recreate. This is not a situation of a barely sentient species finding one of these things amongst the rocks and then bludgeoning his neighbor with it. Quite the opposite, actually. You can trace its origins back to the ricotta. All right, all right, all right, all right. I know that a lot of historians use the ricotta as a cop-out for the origins of basically anything, but... I mean, they were an advanced civilization who more or less conquered the galaxy over 35,000 years ago. I mean, they figured out hyperspace travel all on their own and created a legacy called the Infinite Empire. That sounds really big. <laughs> Naturally, they discovered a way to make cool laser swords. So much of the ricotta has been lost. But there is some evidence to point to what's known as a force saber. Like modern lightsabers, it was a focused plasma beam, but unlike today's version, it used crystals made from a lab through which the ricotta channeled dark force energy. Upside, well, I mean, these things weren't too hard to make, right? I mean, all you need is a lab and some alchemy and uh, you make a crystal. Then, unfortunately, you have to keep pumping dark side energy into it and you have a force saber. The downside is, of course, that every time you use it, you are falling a little bit further into the dark side, eventually being, unfortunately, consumed by it. The Ricotta, who were running around making this infinite empire, used these things extensively. They came in two varieties. The Force Saber, which looks an awful lot like a modern lightsaber, and then the Force Pike. Here, here's a hollow of the Force Pike. So for those of you in the back uh, with human vision, it is a long staff with a bit of a lightsaber at the end so that you know that that's the business end. You can really get some power into a thrust with a pike. Plus, the reach is excellent. The ricotta had servants called force hounds. These servants would have to make their own force saber. But the ricotta themselves they incidentally preferred the force pike for some reason. Uh, maybe it was because they were tall. Uh, maybe they just liked the look. I don't know. I mean, it was 35,000 years ago. <laughs> These force hounds, after making their force saber, would do whatever the ricotta wanted them to do, including getting more force hounds. Uh, they fought a lot with these weapons. The Force Sabers behaved just like a real lightsaber, including all the cutting, so the Ricotta made their Force Hounds write their names all over their bodies in Arabesh. Of course it was Arabesh, right? So that if they needed to clean up the pieces of a Force Hound after a particularly nasty encounter with another Force Saber, uh, they could tell who he or she or it was. Incidentally, uh, sort of the earliest signs that lightsabers are really good at dismembering opponents. <laughs> Fun fact about force sabers. Remember how I said that they're powered by a constant stream of dark side energy by the user into the crystal? Well, the Ricotta crashed a ship on Tython, which is where the Jedi were. 
we're going to get into this a lot more in the future. So don't get too hung up on the details, but the Jedi were obviously the origin of the Jedi Order. Well, there was a split in the Jedi Order at some point between the light side and the dark side. And where am I going with this? Well, some historians believe that it was the introduction of the Force Saber by the Rakata that was the original source of this split. Remember, you had to pour dark side force into the crystal to make the weapon work, which made you fall farther and farther into the dark side. Not so long after the Rakata threat was eliminated, suddenly you have the force wars between the light and the dark sides of the Jedi. I think it's pretty plausible that this weapon, if it didn't start the fall to the dark side for some of the Jedi, absolutely accelerated it. In the end, if you know anything about the Rakata at all, you know that they aren't around anymore, so that particular piece of technology is long gone. There is a blip in lightsaber history which is worth mentioning here. Sometime around this era, about 25,000 years BBY, we, okay, wait, hang on, this is, this is our first class. So when we say BBY, we mean before the Battle of Yavin. We had to pick something that was a reference point for galactic history, and that one had a really big explosion, which is always cool. So where was it? Okay. Um, so right around 25,000 BBY, before the Battle of Yavin, when the Rakata were pretty much gone and the Jedi were having their force wars against each other, this thing shows up. And this thing is called the First Blade. For all intents and purposes, it is a fully functional lightsaber. It was built by a Jedi called the Weapon Master. He only built one, and maybe it was just by luck, but however he did it, he didn't tell anyone else how to do it, and they couldn't recreate it. The story goes that all modern lightsaber tech is based off the first blade. To me, I mean, it really sounds like time travel, but good luck trying to figure out the science on how to pull that one off. Either way, this one blade wasn't enough to equip an army on either side, so when the Force Wars were happening, they pretty much just used regular swords. It's, it's just worth noting that this one little blip in history might be the first functional lightsaber. I'm telling you, time travel. It's pretty weird. Next up is the Proto-Saber, which frankly makes a lot more sense as a precursor to the lightsaber. There's two different weapons known specifically as the Proto-Saber, depending on which historians you believe. One of them is sort of a broadsword with two energized blades that slowly angle towards each other at the tip. There is really not a lot of historical information on this particular weapon, so we are just going to gloss over it. But it was technically called the Protosaber, and it did exist before lightsabers. The other Protosaber is much more logical and really easy to find in history. And aren't you all lucky that the University of Coruscant has a really big budget for the history department? I paid a certain Bothan associate of mine, a ton of credits to procure one of these. Let's fire this thing up. Oh, whoa. <laughs> that 
That thing sounds terrible. If your visuals cut out on the broadcast of this, I'm going to describe it to you. Think about a lightsaber, except the hilt has a cable on the bottom that is connected to a battery pack about the size of uh, a Wookiee's fist. Okay, a small Wookiee's fist. The precursor to the modern lightsaber definitely existed as far back as 7,000 years before the Battle of Yavin. BBY. You all know BBY now. See, we can do this. BBY. The protosaber is unfortunately a tremendous energy hog, and once your battery pack was spent, well, I mean, you better hope that the other guy runs out of batteries too. And that was just the first of two problems. There wasn't a small enough power supply to get it all in the saber hilt, so you had to power it with a battery that you had to carry. The second problem is that now you have this cable between the battery and the proto-saber, so forget about throwing it. Plus, if that cable ever got cut, well, I mean, that's the end of the show, right? It's an extremely wonky weapon, in my opinion, and it existed that way only out of technological limitations. Funny enough, this protosaber design actually shows up again in the Clone Wars thousands and thousands of years later when modern lightsaber technology was already everywhere. Some creative folks made protosabers complete with the battery pack and the cable, uh, but this time the battery pack acted in a different capacity, and it sort of gave it a, a power boost for a brief period of time, making a super powerful saber. Still, it seems pretty crazy to have to carry around a battery on a cord, but apparently this was a thing for a while. And that is going to take us to the modern era. But before we conclude, do we have any questions from the class? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Just come on up. Step right up to the microphone, Droids. Come on. Come on. Hi, Professor. I love your class. Of course you do. But I do insist that you introduce yourself to your classmates if you're going to ask a question. Hyperia Pixel. When the Proto Saber came out, did it make everything else obsolete? Excellent question, Miss Pixel. You are a credit to Twi'leks everywhere. The answer is heavens no. When the Protosaber came out, it was competing with all sorts of force weapons. The old Ricotta trick of making force weapons by pouring dark force energy into special crystals, well, that was just lost to time. But folks sure did figure out how to pour some force into just any old weapon, making it significantly stronger. Plus, even if you weren't using the force to augment an axe, well, I mean, it was still an axe, so that's nice. Yeah, there was all sorts of force weapons during those times. My favorite story is uh, that of an old Jedi master named Vodo Siosk Bass, who liked to force up his walking stick for battles. Can you imagine being attacked by an old Jedi with a force-powered cane? Well... I'll bet Exar Kun, uh, the leader of the Sith Empire, could, because that's pretty much exactly what happened to him. Uh, now, unfortunately, that old Jedi Master was killed by Kun, which is not a great ending to this story, but still, hey, force-powered Kane, right? <laughs> well, that is it for this class. I will see you next week as we dive into modern lightsabers. 
your homework is to try to make a force weapon. If you don't have the force, then just hook up some sort of battery to whatever it is you're working with and crank it up. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on modern lightsabers. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for that excellent welcome. I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised by your enthusiastic response to our first class. Although, come to think of it, I really shouldn't have been surprised at all. Also, to the student who painted a portrait of me riding a white bantha into battle, wearing gleaming chrome armor, I have to say, that is simply not something that I've ever done. I have only done that on a brown bantha. The white ones get far too dirty. But I truly do appreciate the gesture. I proudly hung it in the staff lounge right before class. I do hope that's not a bother to the other professors. Lightsabers! Lightsabers! Check this out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've been practicing a bit. Oh, dear. I hope that that droid was not a member of the faculty. I guess that's the price you pay for having a holodrama star like myself on staff. Nonetheless, I'm sure all of you are as excited as I am to finish our two-class series on lightsabers. Last week, we learned all about where they came from and how early versions were made, but let's be honest, nothing really compares to the sound and feel of a modern lightsaber. Just listen to this thing. Magnificent. If I had the force, I would spend all day long building these things. And then I would fire all my stuntmen because now I had the force, which seems like it would be really handy for the holodramas. Regardless, lightsabers. When we spoke last, we talked about the proto-saber and its terrible design. Well, I mean, I guess you can't really call it terrible because it did more or less create a lightsaber even if it was tied by a cord to a battery on your hip. It was just limited by the technology of the age. Well, eventually that was solved by the Sith Empire. They were the first to discover that if you put a battery into the hilt, introduced a superconductor, looped the energy from the negative charged flux aperture right back through the power cell, well, then you would only expend power when the blade was actually cutting something, which saved a ton of power. Add in the magnetic stabilizing ring, your trusty focusing crystal, and ta-da, lightsaber. It's, believe it or not, more complicated than that, but we are historians, not ancient engineers. <laughs> Incidentally, remember how we ended last week talking about an old Jedi master named Vodo Siosk Baz? with his force walking stick and how he challenged the Sith Empire's leader, Exar Kun. Well, guess what Kun killed him with? 
you got it, a lightsaber. The Sith Empire perfected these things, so the moral of that story is, do not bring a cane to a lightsaber fight. (laughs) I'm sure that many of you have not ever held a lightsaber. After all, we're not all wealthy and famous like myself, so how does something like this feel? Is it delicate? Is it sturdy? When you tell someone that it's a focused plasma beam, well, that doesn't really mean anything. I think one of the greatest quotes about what a lightsaber actually feels like was made by a Jedi named Kanan Jarrus. When asked why it feels so heavy, and it does, he said, quote, energy constantly flows through the crystal. You're not fighting with a simple blade as much as you are directing a current of power, end quote. Force users found it actually helpful to use the force to help guide and control a blade like this. The blade was always extremely hot since it's pure energy. I alluded to it last week, but we all know this anyways. Wounds from lightsabers rarely bleed, even if you lost a limb to one. The edges are simply sealed with heat, known as cauterizing the wound. Okay. So you have this wildly dangerous plasma blade that's being swung around by force users that have to even use the force to help control it. How on earth do you defend against something like that? Well, if you also had a lightsaber, the blades themselves could block other blades. But only if force users are really using them to anticipate that kind of action. Uh, What about the rest of us mere mortals? If you're holding a regular sword, well, you better also have fast shoes because you're about to lose that fight. Even Durasteel blast doors were no match for the heat of a lightsaber. There were a few rare items that could resist the heat and the energy, some better than others. Um, Zillow Beast Hide was one of them. Mandalorian Iron was another. Both of those are extremely rare and would only really work on glancing blows. But if you're a Mandalorian, then, you know, Mandalorian iron is going to be high on your list of things to acquire if you are hunting Jedi. Cortosis armor is probably the most effective since it redirects the energy within the blade itself, causing it to shut off on contact. They would weave the cortosis right into the armor itself to make this happen. None of this stuff is easy to come by, though, particularly that last one. There's not a lot of moments in history with frustrated Jedi wondering why their lightsaber keeps pooping out. It should be noted that this is not an exhaustive list, either. During the height of the Jedi, there was a lot of experimentation with plasma beams and electrified fields that were pretty good at blocking lightsabers. Lightsabers, for being so rare, do come in a variety of shapes and sizes. The hilt is by far the most varied. There's double-sided hilts, there's hilts made of bone, metals, a giant tooth, you name it. I read about one where uh, a kid built a blaster right into the hilt. There's spinning circular hilts with the blades on the outside of a track. I mean, we could talk about hilts all day long because honestly, there is no limit to the creativity. All you have to do is house the components and have an opening to let the beam out. If you wanted to put it on your lawn droid to keep uh, your Alderanian bent grass short, well, I'm sure you could somehow accomplish that. It's rare and a little more difficult, but even a short cross guard can exist also. 
The crossguard lightsaber is a little bit deceiving as it's not really true blades coming out of the side of the hilt as much as they are vents for excess plasma to escape. I've never really been a fan of that one since it seems like I would really have to worry about cutting myself to ribbons. The individuality of the saber isn't just limited to what kind of hilt you want to make. The colors are vibrant, spectacular hues that look brilliant in a dark environment, but the colors are a little bit more meaningful than the hilt. And to explain that, we have to talk a bit about history, which I suppose is why they pay me. There's a lot of inconsistency about the history of the Jedi and the Sith. Some tales get replaced with new tales, and it's very difficult to tell the differences between history and lore. So I'm going to tell you two wildly different theories on how lightsabers get their colors. Both revolve around the crystals. It also unfortunately explains why none of you are likely to be able to make a lightsaber at all. I know that that really must hurt you, but there is a reason why lightsabers are rare. Method one. Just put whatever you want in there for a crystal. A shard of glass, any crystal at all, special or not. Then meditate on it for days and pour the force into it. What's that? You can't use the force? Well, tough luck. Naturally, shards of glass are not going to work the best for this, so the better crystal you could get, the better it would work. Now, it surprises me that this method would work at all, but what do I know? I mean, I'm not a Jedi. Who knows? Maybe after force blasting for six days, we could get that droid that I chopped in half earlier to get up and sign my autographs. Still, it seems kind of fishy. No offense to any Mon Cal out there. Method two. Go to Ilum, a snowy planet where the crystals grow naturally and allegedly call out to the Force users. These crystals, known as Kyber crystals, or just Kyber, are living things. They had grown a relationship to the Jedi who had used them for lightsabers for tens of thousands of years. If the crystal didn't want you, it would stay cold and silent. But if it did pick you, it would ring in a sort of harmony as you neared it. All of the crystals had no color until you selected it, or it selected you, and then it would pick its own color. Lightsiders would often end up with greens and blues, while darksiders almost always had red. There is even a fork in the road on method two. Some modern historians believe that darksiders never started with red crystals. Since the crystals from Ilum were actually living things, the dark side users could inflict a sort of pain upon them, known as bleeding the crystal. So you put enough pain into a crystal and it would turn red. Some theorize that all red lightsabers used by the Sith at that time were lightsabers taken from a killed Jedi and then bled, bleeding the crystal. And remember, during the Sith Empire, there was a whole empire of them. Seems like a really inefficient way to equip an army, but psychologically, pretty intense, right? I mean, you had to torture a living crystal to get that red color. In the end, there is not a lot of lightsabers around. And there's not a lot of push to mass produce these things because you have to have the force, more or less, to help you use it. They are extremely dangerous to the person swinging it. Unless you have the force, it's probably easier to just learn to quick draw a blaster like everybody else. 
Okay, do we have any questions from the audience? Uh, hello, Professor. Please, please, introduce yourself. I always ask that the students introduce themselves. My name is Quantum Thrustbottom. Other than the hilt, did lightsaber blades have to be the same length because of the engineering? Excellent question, Mr. Thrustbottom. No, although they usually were. The blade is typically about 90 centimeters long. However, a popular modification was the Shoto Saber, which was half of that size. If you happen to be a very small Jedi or a Sith, such as the famous Jedi Master Yoda, well then a Shoto Saber was basically a full-size saber for you. More often though, it would be used for dual wielding techniques or in combination with one larger blade. And that will do it for class today. Homework for next week is to use your holo tablet to design a lightsaber that has never been seen before and submit it to me. Extra credit for the winners and engravings of my image on the hilt will not improve your chances. I'm just kidding, they totally will. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on blaster pistols. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you again for such loving applause. I have to say, you guys really know how to make a former holodrama star feel right at home. And really, you must stop with the gestures. The golden statue of me that was left outside my office was far too big for me to put inside. The only place that I could reasonably fit it was in the hallway outside Dean Fontana's office. Oh, I do so love that Rodian. I hope she doesn't mind the statue. It does take up a bit of room. Also, the painting of myself has mysteriously disappeared from the staff lounge. If any of you know its whereabouts, please let me know. I'd grown rather attached to that glorious battle scene. For today's class, I would like to harken back to one of my old holodramas, a movie where I was on a terrible planet called Tatooine. I was a heroic farmer in a drama called The Last Drop of Death. I'm sure I don't need to explain the plot to any of you, as I imagine you've all seen it multiple times. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that on backwater worlds like that, where farmers are simply trying to defend their land, life can be pretty hard. That is, until you get a blaster pistol. The average farmer cannot fight off raiders with his bare hands. He can't do it with a big stick, and swords require training and skill. But you give the average farmer a blaster pistol and a short range, and now your average raider is thinking twice about his formerly easy target. <laughs> the invention of the blaster pistol evened the field for defenseless farmers everywhere. I do love a good blaster pistol. I've used so many of these things in the holodramas, all disarmed of course, they simply wouldn't allow me to do my own stunts that included live blasters. 
I'm sure my importance was just too great. Their rules were so tight, I was barely allowed around any of the things. But today, I've brought in a whole bunch of excellent examples, all thanks to my Bothan associate. We'll divide up all of these pistols into two main categories. There's my personal favorites, the heavy blaster pistols, and then there's the much smaller holdout blasters. Now, there is a ton of examples in each category, and probably way more categories than I could have made here, but this is a reasonable start. Before we even pick up any blasters, I think it is important to explain to everybody what exactly a blaster blasts. I mean, what comes out of a blaster? Most people would incorrectly refer to them as lasers. They are not lasers. A blaster shoots blaster bolts, which are made of intense plasma energy. And they did this by converting energy-rich gases into a glowing particle beam that could melt through its targets. Now, there's a word in there which I used which is kind of a big deal. It's particle beam. Because of this, when it hit, it would not only pass tremendous heat, but it would also cause friction with the particles. The amount of friction could vary wildly, but with enough friction, you can really pack a punch and kill even an armored opponent. Plus, because it had friction due to being a particle beam, you could defend against them with magnetic seals or deflector shields. You could even bat one away with a lightsaber or bat it right back at the person who just fired it. Just yet another reason not to pick fights with Jedi. <laughs> okay, let's look at this guy. This, my friends, is a DL-44 heavy blaster pistol. Manufactured as early as 33 BBY by probably the most famous blaster company out there, Blastech. It's got an impressive weight to it, but it still fits very comfortably in my- Oh my god! Oh! I am so sorry. Oh! Wow. Well, I have heard that your species regenerates limbs, right? Is that- Is that not you guys? Okay. Um, why don't you see me after class and I will definitely get you a few extra signed copies of my hollow biography. Wow, where was I? Uh, the DL-44, known for its high accuracy and heavy punch, this baby was loved by basically everyone. Smugglers, military, civilians, it's really the answer to the question. And what's the question? Well, it doesn't matter because this only has one answer and it only needs one answer. You fire this thing once and that is the end of the conversation. The DL-44 has a maximum range of about 75 meters, which is really a long way, but nobody uses it for that. If you insisted on shooting at that distance, it did come with a scope, which helped, but it's primarily a close range weapon due to the amount of damage that it can do. You see, the DL-44 had the ability to charge a bolt to twice the power of a normal shot without damaging the blaster when it fired. It has a capacity of 50 shots. 50 shots. That's pretty good when any single one of them will put down most opponents, even the armored ones. And if you somehow went crazy and fired until you were nearly empty, well, at least you were warned. The handle was designed with a pulsing hand grip so that about five rounds left, 
it'd give you a little pulse and let you know that you were about to be holding an empty blaster. At a very reasonable cost of 750 credits, there's very few drawbacks to the DL-44. But even with all of that, most people bought it because it was so easily customized. The DL-44 was probably most famous as the sidearm of the Rebel Alliance general Han Solo. He grew up on Corellia, which has some pretty tight corners. I imagine that this is exactly the kind of gun which would do very well there. Solo, like so many others, tinkered with his DL-44 a bit and removed the barrel sights which allowed it to be drawn quicker. In case you're not catching the theme here, most people don't fire this thing more than one shot, and that's pretty true with almost any heavy blaster pistol. It's a pretty big advantage to shoot first. Some interesting facts about the Blastex DL-44. When it first came out, it had a huge appeal to a lot of outlaws and Outer Rim residents for one specific reason. Remember what I said about the friction of blaster bolts? Well, the DL-44 could penetrate Imperial Stormtrooper armor. Naturally, this was a big hit amongst those who were not fans of the Empire. But those people weren't writing the rules at the time. The Empire was. So, the Empire put a lot of restrictions on the purchase of it, which created a bit of a secondary market for blasters that looked a lot like the DL-44, but were toned down a bit. The weapons manufacturing company Mersan made a pistol called the Model 57, which is pretty much a straight knockoff. Interestingly enough, the Jedi Luke Skywalker carried that weapon, which I find kind of funny and appropriate given the historical documents about Skywalker and Solo's relationship. Another famous blaster pistol that I'd put in the category of heavy blaster is the DH-17. These were everywhere during their heyday, also around 30 BBY. This particular blaster has a sort of pointed nose like a missile, and it was used by both the Imperials and the Rebels at the time. It was also made by Blastech, but it had an enormous difference from the heavier DL-44. The DH-17 could be fired fully automatic. Now, it would drain all of its power in about 20 seconds, but with fully automatic fire, 20 seconds... Think about that, 20 seconds of fully automatic fire is a long time. One, two, three, four, and so on. I mean, fully automatic out of a pistol. That's enough time to form a plan on what to do when you're empty. Sustained fire is a very military thing, so it's no real surprise that these were a favorite with the various armies and navies of the day. Now, Holdout blasters are a very different game. They were designed to be much smaller, which accomplished a few different goals, depending on who you were. There were two main categories, military and civilian. The civilian versions were highly regulated, mostly because they were concealed so easily. Most planets restricted the power of the shots, saying that the goal was to ward off attackers and not become vigilantes but the ability to conceal the holdout blaster was just too much to resist for a lot of smugglers. And they really loved them, even though they only fired about six shots. But the smugglers would dial those things up to get as much power as they could. 
A great example of the military version of the holdout blaster is the EC-17 made by, guess who, Blastech Industries. Honestly, these guys made a lot of blasters. These blasters were famously carried by Imperial Scout troops, and they would hide them right in their boot. And that should really be all that needs to be said for the difference between a holdout blaster and a heavy blaster. The EC-17 had some fun trinkets, too like a pressure grip to allow it to be fired with gloves on, and a super bright light that could also be used as a sort of non-lethal response. But they're small blasters, you know? They're designed to be a last resort or for stealth. One of the prizes of this little collection is a holdout blaster called the Blurg 1120. It was made by a company called Eris Ryloth Defense Tech. Apparently, it was originally registered to a pilot named Harris Sandula, and this thing had nine separate firing modes, including a double shot. Why would anybody need nine separate firing modes? I have no idea, but I really like this thing. It has an almost backwards missile look to it, and I have never been able to find anything like this. In the end, our previously mentioned Han Solo said it best. Here's the quote. If you're gonna have to admit to carrying a blaster pistol, carry two and admit to one. That's pretty awesome. Okay, it is that time again. Questions from the class. Yes, yes you. Step right up to the microphone, droid. Go ahead. You mentioned bright lights. What kind of other options did blaster pistols have? And what is your name, youngling? It's Blur Lightfire. Well, thank you so much for your question, Mr. Lightfire. We will be sure to watch your career with great interest. The answer is yes, of course. I personally love the S5, which was used by security on a planet called Naboo. Underneath the barrel is a dart launcher that could fire an anesthetic microdart, a sting charge, or even a grappling hook tip. The grappling hook tip, by the way, is super neat. It has a liquid cable shooter attachment that has enough liquid to form 65 feet of cable capable of holding up to 1,100 pounds. How awesome is that, Mr. Lightfire? Pretty awesome. You're darn right it is. Well, that's it for class, folks. For next class, I want you to bring in a homemade blaster. I'm pretty sure this is going to be okay with Dean Wombata, but I'm just going to check with her sometime this week and let her know that I told you all to do it. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on explosives. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Students, thank you so much again. 
My Hollow Knight career is nothing compared to the love that I feel from such welcoming applause. Again, you are too kind. Like the student who left that wonderful suit in my office, I put it on immediately. Although I did forget that I had a meeting with Dean Sulfura later that afternoon. You clever kids didn't warn me that it was sewn with hollow fibers that caused it to disintegrate. Except for enough of the pants to preserve my dignity and the word Ravencourt on my back. While I thought it was a clever salute to my physique, Dean Santana left uh, rather quickly. I didn't even get the chance to hear what she was going to say about ethics and the university's gift policy or something. Good news, though. I did find that painting of myself that you guys made. Somebody had carelessly left it near the garbage droids outside the staff lounge. I put it right outside the dean's office where I think it'll be much safer. And speaking of creative ways to make something disappear, today we are going to be talking about exactly that, only a lot messier. That's right, it is time to play with explosives. The Holodrama Guild would never let me do any of this when I was on set, but it turns out that an educational system has surprisingly few rules when addressing whether or not I can handle live explosives in class. Thanks to my boss and associate, I have managed to procure a few of them. I would say that he needs a raise, but you don't exactly have somebody like that on the payroll, if you know what I mean. Mostly tax reasons. We'll start today with a truly iconic piece of equipment. I'll let you take a guess as to what I am talking about. Here is a hint. It is an excellent addition to any bounty hunter's bag of tricks. It's easily concealed, but it packs a big punch. And if you hear this sound, why should you take somebody seriously? Because he is holding a thermal detonator. Ooh, sounds like it's getting hot. The thermal detonator. This little round ball of death has been around since at least 4,000 BBY, which is a fairly decent amount of time. When you think about it, though, I'm a little surprised they haven't been spotted earlier in history. The concept is very simple, which lends itself to a lot of variations. But at its core, they're all pretty much the same. The outside shell of this silver-looking sphere can be thermite or axidite. The inside is where it counts, though, and that is beradium, which is a highly volatile substance. When it was detonated, it created an expanding particle field that could vaporize anything within its range, which was usually about 6 meters or 20 feet. By the way, can you believe that we still haven't decided between meters and feet? You would think that one of these galactic regimes would just pick one and force the rest of the universe to fall in line. But no, I have to waffle between the two and pick whichever sounds more impressive. Personally, I think 20 feet sounds more impressive. It's bigger, right? Where was I? Right, beradium, particle field, vaporize anything inside. Yes, so there's a really practical element to this kind of explosive as well, and that is the field itself. Whatever's inside the field goes bye-bye, but if it's even slightly outside the blast radius, which is a very fixed thing, it won't be harmed at all. So this isn't the kind of explosion that sends shrapnel out as far as it can fly. It's an explosion that makes a field that goes exactly a certain distance and then collapses in on itself. 
It doesn't create heat, and it doesn't make a mess. And they all pretty much work like that. The variations come on how it's deployed. There is a ton of ways to make a thermal detonator go off. You can have timed releases of virtually any amount. You can make the shell magnetic so you can hide them. You can have a remote detonation. One variation particularly popular with bounty hunters is called the dead man's switch. The detonators usually came with a curved switch on the top since it's a sphere. You'd roll the switch forward to turn it on and roll it back to turn it off. Well, if you were playing a particularly dangerous game, you could make that a dead man switch, meaning that if you took your thumb off the switch at all, then the whole thing would detonate. It is an excellent bluff. I used that back in my holodrama Death Stick Part 5, still sticking. Of course, in the hollows, they always back down. Be careful with this technique in real life. Let's switch gears here and talk about a much bigger bomb, which is deployed in a completely different way. This bomb was stock ordnance on the Galactic Empire's TIE bombers, and I am speaking about the proton bomb. I don't happen to have a proton bomb here because they're just way too big and way too heavy. And it's hard to surprise a class with a proton bomb. Everyone can see this thing coming for good reason. But just because you can see something coming doesn't mean that it loses its effectiveness. Unlike the proton rocket or torpedo, which are commonly used in ship-to-ship combat, the proton bomb was a bunker buster. It either used gravity or the inertia of the ship letting it go to get where it wanted to be. Another way to get it there was to make them a little bit magnetic. Once you cleared the pull of the ship firing it, it would slowly fall towards the next big metal object, which is usually the base that you were sending it at. Not a very speedy deployment, but once it got there, it made a very big bang. Honestly, the proton bomb is so effective that there isn't really a lot of other options for galactic space combat. If there's a fortification that you needed to get through, a proton bomb is pretty much your best option every time. There has been a few limited variations, but they're pretty rare. One that comes to mind is the electro-proton bomb. When the Galactic Republic, before the Empire, was fighting against the Separatist army, it needed a way to get rid of a lot of droids. And what better way than an electromagnetic pulse? A few modifications to the proton bomb, and ta-da! You have one giant droid eliminator. Unfortunately, they kind of used it willy-nilly on a planet called Malastare, and it really screwed with the ecosystem. They ended up waking up an ancient monster called the Zillow Beast, and, well, as they say, the rest is history. One final example for today is my personal favorite. This is a bomb that acts in a very unique way, making it a useful tool in clearing debris like asteroid fields. But anything that can explode can be used as a weapon, which this surely was. This, my friends, is a seismic charge. Now, be careful with this. A seismic charge is filled with two substances that act in concert. First, you have your standard explosive beradium, but the special sauce here is something that's called collapsium, and it does exactly what it says. 
So when the charge goes off, it expands out, but then immediately wants to collapse on itself. And what happens is super cool. It sucks in all of the sound waves in the vicinity as it is collapsing, and it sort of tries to smash them all down with it, but eventually it can't. And that's when the fun starts. It explodes outwards in a flat ring of sound waves that does a particularly good job at destroying solid objects. Sound is just vibrational waves, right? And solid objects tend to not like that stuff very well particularly rock, which is why they're used largely to destroy asteroid fields. Plus, it makes the coolest sound when it goes off. So, do we have any questions from the class? Step right up to the microphone, droid. Ah, yes, you. Go right ahead. Hello, Professor. They call me Bazdunek. And do they call you that because that's your name? Bazdunek is also my name. Well, excellent. Please, go on with your question. Yes, my question is thus. If you want to make a mess, what can you use other than a thermal detonator? Ah, yes. A very appropriate and ominous question. What I would personally recommend is what's known as a denton. That is short for pyrodenton, and pyro is short for big explosive fire. Dentons look a lot like thermal detonators, but they don't have the beradium core. Instead, they're just your old stock explosive chemicals, so instead of making a nice neat particle field, they just explode outwards in a big fiery bang. And I think that should probably accomplish your goal, whatever that may be. Well, that's going to do it for today. Homework for tomorrow will be to design a better bomb than what you've seen here today. Just to give you a head start, I'm going to show you the inside of this seismic charge. It's got some pretty tough plating here, so I'm just going to take this spanner here and uh, pry off a little bit of the outside of the... Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on bounty hunter weaponry. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you again from the bottom of my extremely humble heart. I do love hearing that applause. I don't anticipate having to cut class short today, but apparently I have some sort of meeting with a number of human resource droids. They said it had to do with parking, which I assume is because some of you replaced Dean LaBlast as speeder parking spot sign with one that said Ravencourt, future Dean, and then you erased the lines around it, making the spot extra large. I thought it might have been a gesture from the Dean herself, but apparently I don't know Rodian customs as well as I thought I did because she didn't seem to have sanctioned that. I'm only guessing because when I parked there, she seemed somewhat upset. 
Also, I think her speeder might have been inadvertently towed. Nonetheless, I guess we'll find out what those HR droids really want to talk about after class. So, you are tired of the galactic rat race. You've been slaving away at your desk, putting in extra hours for some Gamorrean middle manager who doesn't appreciate you. And last week, they gave the Wookiee down the hall a promotion instead of you. Everyone knows that you deserve that promotion, and Rookroll doesn't even know how to turn the capitals off on her holopad. That's it. You quit. But how are you going to pay the rent on your Coruscant flat now? How about the exciting world of bounty hunting? See the galaxy, meet interesting people, and then put them in a bag and take them to a hut where you'll also meet interesting people. And those ones will give you a fat stack of credits for your work, tax-free. All it takes is a determined spirit, a loose moral compass, and a whole lot of cool weaponry. Today, we are going to introduce you to some of those staple weapons for bounty hunting. Now, I think it goes without saying that there isn't a specific set of gear that is required for this kind of work. This isn't like outfitting a legion of stormtroopers. Each bounty hunter has to find what works for them, and the good ones tailor their gear specifically to their strengths and what they hope to accomplish. Many would accept the bounty and then go out and actually get the gear and not the other way around. But there are some common threads with this type of equipment that you need in order to engage in this kind of lifestyle. Also, and this is very important for a class on weaponry, there is a difference between a bounty hunter and an assassin. Frankly, I think it'd be easier to just be an assassin. If I had two jobs, one of them was to kill a target and then just go home, and the other one is to actually bring that target back to the bounty provider, well, I would rather do the first one. What if it's a hut you're hunting? Have you ever tried to move a hut? This doesn't mean that the bounties can't be capture or kill. I'm just saying that if you're an assassin, capturing really isn't in your job description, which makes bounty hunters a different breed than assassins. And, therefore, you need different weaponry. We are going to approach this topic by picking some pieces off the most famous bounty hunter in history. The gold standard was a human named Boba Fett. He lived during the rise and fall of the Galactic Empire. Now, don't you worry your pretty little brain tails. We are for sure going to revisit Mr. Fett in detail later. But for the purposes of this class, he was very famous, very feared, and had very good gear. His approach was a multi-tool one. His gear was diverse and ready for lots of unpredictable situations. Here's the example. The wrist gauntlet. Boba Fett carried the equivalent of a toolbox on each forearm. It didn't get in the way of his hands and provided him a lot of utility in the field. First up is the ZX Miniature Flamethrower. Boba, like his father Jango Fett, liked to keep this on his left wrist gauntlet. Jango Fett, also by the way, 
was the original source for all of the clone troopers in the late Galactic Republic era. But that is an entirely different class. Just know that Boba inherited some of his gear choices from his father, who was also a bounty hunter. The ZX Miniature Flamethrower is an excellent close combat game changer. This little dandy was made by the Zerka Corporation. It was hooked by cords through the gauntlet directly to a Mitronomen Z6 jetpack, which provided it with enough fuel to run for three straight minutes. I'm not entirely sure why anybody would need to operate a flamethrower on blast for three minutes, but hey, options, right? If I'm in a tough spot, I would want a flamethrower. Maybe not the most elegant of weapons, but certainly a pass to get out of wherever you are. In addition to that, right below the flamethrower, we are going to add a DUR-24 wrist laser from our old friends at Blastech Industries. This miniaturized laser had the power of your average Blastech blaster rifle, but was extremely small. It didn't have a lot of rounds, but it was unexpected when it fired, and being unpredictable is a major advantage for a bounty hunter. So. That's two of the three items on the left. The third is a Kelvaric Consolidated Arms MM9 Mini Concussion Rocket. Pretty handy, if you'll pardon the pun. This was set slightly above the forearms to avoid shooting a rocket into the back of your hands. Of course, you could change the payload to be a few different options, including anti-personnel rockets, stun rockets, or even homing missiles. I would go on, but I mean, what can I say? It's a rocket on your wrist. But what if you're not interested in collecting charred corpses? What if you actually need to capture your target alive in order to get paid? Well, Mr. Fett carried a fiber cord whip in his right gauntlet. Fiber cord is a sort of rope made of strong, durable materials such as flexisteel, which takes quite a lot to cut it, but bends really, really well. This was also called a monolink filament or a smart rope. It was called a smart rope for its natural propensity to wrap around a target once it meets resistance. At the end, you'd usually find a grappling hook, which worked perfectly with that wrapping technique. So, when you're trying to subdue a bounty, wrapping them up in an extremely strong cord is a great start. All secretly hidden inside your right wrist gauntlet. On old righty, we're also going to add a couple vibroblades. Anytime I hear vibroblades, I think here is a guy that means business, but doesn't have the moral restrictions of a Jedi. Vibro weaponry is particularly nasty. It's basically a regular sword or knife fitted with a vibration generator in the hilt, making the blade vibrate incredibly fast and subtly. The practical effect was that even the slightest cut turned into a gaping wound. Plus, they could be manufactured with all sorts of material, including cortosis weave, which we know from past episodes is a serious problem for lightsabers. The downside is that if the blade takes a good electrical shock, it tends to explode at the generator, which incidentally is also where you usually have your hand. Or should I say where you had your hand. Anyway, back to our bounty hunter. Putting a few extendable vibroblades in your right gauntlet, that can never be bad. 
And finally, on our right gauntlet, we have another multi-tool, the Prax Arms Velocity 7 Dart Launcher. Now this item was a straight pass down from Boba's father, Django Fett. Allegedly, Django loved this tool for assassination purposes, but the darts themselves could be carrying almost anything. The Velocity 7 is actually a fairly large dart shooter, so getting it inside the gauntlet is pretty impressive engineering. It was fired with a compressed gas, which was pinpoint accurate within 10 meters. You could hit a target about 100 meters away, but only if you were really lucky. As far as the toxin those darts were carrying, well, imagination is really your only limit. There's even tales of a microscopic tracker hidden inside the serums being loaded into the darts. I guess I've never really understood that one though. Because if you're going to hit a bounty with the dart, well, then you might as well either knock them out or kill them with it, right? And if I'm the bounty, well, I would be pretty suspicious after pulling a dart out of my neck. But hey, options, right? So, we've gone down the list and we've checked off flamethrower, dart launcher, fiber cord whip, vibroblades, and wrist laser. And this is just on his forearms. Boba Fett was truly a walking toolbox, and this was simply his standard outfitting. He was well known for picking up specialty gear. Not that being the galaxy's best bounty hunter isn't a good paying gig, but a fun fact about Fett was that he was known to play the trade market during his hunts. If he thought he might shift the economy of a particular area that he was about to do work in, well, he would pick up real estate or trade shares of local companies. How amazing is that? Not only would he be going around capturing and killing targets, he'd also be trading on the investments that he knew would change because of the work he was doing. I love that so much. Gear is expensive and that is just absolutely genius. Finally, I cannot end class without talking about the jetpack. Metronomen's Z6 jetpack was a Mandalorian favorite. But don't get hung up too much about Mandalorians because that's a pretty complicated subject. Just know that they loved jetpacks and this one was the top of the line. It is capable of sustained flight up to a height of 70 meters and also usable for quick ascension. You had to be careful with it though because it was well known to go off after sustaining a blow. And you don't want your jetpack to go off uncontrolled while you are wearing it because you are a passenger at that point. The coolest thing about the Z6 is that it was easily adapted to hold a rocket, but honestly, I just don't have the energy to talk about rockets anymore. Anti-personnel, stun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It shot a big rocket out of the top. <laughs> Flying a jetpack that shoots a rocket, spectacular enough that it really stands on its own without me having to elaborate on different kinds of rockets, right? And honestly, that's where we're gonna end. Fett also carried a carbine rifle, but we'll include that in our blaster rifle conversation. And remember, these are just the stock items that he had on him. He was famous for adding and subtracting gear all the time. Bounty Hunter isn't just a job, it is a passion. Okay, questions from the class. Who is going to step up to the microphone droids today? My turn. Me, me. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, Professor. Oh my uh, god, uh, step back from the microphone. 
Professor Cran Wolatex here. I've heard about Boba Fett's helmet, but you didn't mention that. What was it particularly special? Of course it was, Mr. Wolatex. This piece of equipment was less unique to Fett, though, and more of stock Mandalorian gear, believe it or not. Mandalorian helmets were described as T-shaped because of the design of the macro binocular viewplate. They had a rangefinder on the right side that could be pulled down over the viewplate to enhance the imagery. Naturally, it had a tactical readout and a comlink built into it. More or less as much information as you could possibly put in front of your eyes while still seeing the target. In my opinion, the smarter and more prepared the bounty hunter, the better the bounty hunter, right? This helmet added a ton to exactly that. Well, that is it for today. Homework for next class is to build your own wrist gauntlet and put whatever you want in there. For inspiration, I made my own custom-built miniature flamethrower into this podium. Check this out. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on blaster rifles. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. so much as always you really do make me feel at home here and speaking of feeling at home how did you know that i love celebrations as much as i do after every successful holonet movie that i starred in we would have fireworks well one of you must have left a box full of them ready to burst open with color and explosion with a card on it saying only open outside I took that card and immediately put it in my coat pocket so I wouldn't forget. Unfortunately, Dean Yomasta had called me into her office with a bunch of litigation droids for something, and I must have left the box there. The meeting was pretty boring, and I don't recall what they were saying to me. I was just so excited about receiving such a gift. Well, when I finally went back to get it, the whole wing was closed off and there were fire ships all over. It's a pretty new building. I wouldn't have expected a fire to break out, but I guess strange things happen. I'll go back tomorrow and see if my box is still in her office. I would love to see those explode. (laughs) If you're going to talk about weapons, then eventually you're going to get around to the blaster rifle. Now, I'm not going to do this correctly because when I use the term blaster rifle, I use it very loosely. And it's fair to say that I use it incorrectly. I wanted to do a class on blaster rifles, but I found that after some research, there's a few other ranged weapons that aren't blaster pistols that I just have to talk about. So instead of this being technically blaster rifles, it's more like ranged energy, non-blaster pistol long weapons, which is just the stupidest title ever. So instead, I'm going to call this class blaster rifles and have everyone tell me that three quarters of the weapons that I'm talking about aren't actually blaster rifles. But hey, what are you going to do? Perks of being a professor, I guess, right? 
But since we are calling this class blaster rifles, we might as well start with an actual blaster rifle. This is the most widely distributed, most copied blaster rifle to ever exist. And heck, it's even manufactured by our favorite blaster company, Blastec. You know, Blastec must have really been crushing the bottom line during the Galactic Empire because their E-11 blaster rifle was distributed to every single stormtrooper, and there were a lot of stormtroopers. So much that the name of the rifle is sometimes called the Blastec Standard Imperial Sidearm, or the E-11 Military Issue Blaster Rifle. This beauty that I'm holding right here is as stock as they come. And if you're into military history, you have probably even fired one. Just like this. Don't you just love that distinctive sound? Ooh, that last one nearly got away from me there. That is the benefit though of a military grade weapon. Full auto. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's break this guy down. The E-11 was powerful, light, and small. It fired a tight particle beam that was ideal for close combat. Its effective range was about 300 feet, but just fabulous at 100 feet. You could fire it as semi-automatic, a rapid fire, or even a pulse fire. You could refit it to fire just about anything from regular ammunition to grenades to darts. Even the stock on this thing was configurable in about three different settings, changing it from a very compact weapon to a longer, more stable rifle. A lot of its popularity came from that diversity. If you wanted to buy a lot of weapons to get a discount or something, then they better work in a lot of different situations. The E-11 could do almost anything that you wanted, but at its core, it was a close-quarter assault rifle. To help point that out, it had an excellent computer-enhanced scope that aided it in smoky, hazy, or dark environments. Stormtroopers, by their name, stormed places, and conditions were usually less than ideal. Well, the E-11 was designed to help them out in that regard. Another fun addition to the E-11 was the stun mode, and I guess that's for a nicer, gentler empire. Stunfire, as you may know, is a method of overloading a target's nervous system without doing any permanent damage. Usually you get paralysis, sometimes you get a catatonic state, meh, I mean you get what you get, right? They're not dead and that's good enough. The E-11 Stunfire had a distinctive blue ring that dissipated outwards which was caused by an inefficient photogenic energy byproduct, which is just a really wordy way of saying that stunning wasn't exactly what the E-11 was designed for, but, you know, it did it just fine. Like I said earlier, the E-11 was everywhere. Pretty soon you had knockoffs, but really well-made ones. Some of the original designers left Blastech and joined the Rebel Alliance, creating a Rebel version that improved on the cooling system, which consisted of long tubes of a chemical called Freelol. Eventually, Blastech allowed a company named Sorasub to make the Sorasub Stormtrooper 1, which is basically identical to an E-11, but they all ended up on the Rebel side, who named the gun Freedom 1, 
because of course they did, right? <laughs> They're rebels. I guess Blastek figured that if you're going to sell a weapon, why not sell the thing on both sides with a name that's appropriate, right? Next is the first of our not blaster rifles. It's not a rifle, and it's not a blaster. What it is, is unique, and I am talking about a Wookiee bowcaster. I don't actually have one of these with me because you have to take one from a Wookiee, and not even my Bothan associate was up for that task. You see, each Wookiee bowcaster is built individually for him or her. They usually receive them after completing some sort of Wookiee rite of passage, and getting this weapon is a true honor. Hence, not very easy to find these on the secondary market. The Bowcaster is a really interesting piece of technology because it combines the old with the new. It looks like a mix between an archaic crossbow and a blaster rifle, but with two large spheres on each end of the crossbow arms. The way it works is truly genius. The two balls on each side create alternating positive and negative pulses, which also power the bowstring. The ammunition is an explosive quarrel or short metal arrow. When the trigger is pulled, the explosive quarrel travels the length of the shaft and is energized by the two polarizing balls. What comes out of it looks like an elongated blaster bolt, but the energy is putting a sheath around an explosive quarrel. So when it hits something, all the energy of the explosive quarrel is released into a very small area, making it pack a terrific punch. There is rumors about needing a Wookiee strength to fire one of these things, but I think historians have more or less debunked this. There's some pretty good evidence that a human could fire one, but again, you would have to get it from a Wookiee, and Wookiees are not the most trusting of species. Well, I mean, that's true, isn't it? Do you have a bowcaster? And can I borrow it? Yeah, I didn't think so. Maybe someday my Bothan associate is going to run across one of these in the lower levels. You would be amazed at what you can find on the secondary markets down there. Okay, I have two more, so stay with me on this. This one I actually do have a version of. Can anybody tell me what this is? Hey, we do have a Geonosian here. That is right, it is a Geonosian Sonic Blaster. At least this one has blaster in the title. But it definitely doesn't fire blaster bolts. A sonic blaster, as you would expect from its name, fires a sonic blast. You see, Geonosians figured out that you could use sonic waves to help the mining operations blasting rocks apart. And as we all know, once you can destroy something with a new invention, it is only a matter of time before it's militarized. It's not a long-range weapon having an optimum range of only about 15 meters, but boy, do you not want to be inside that 15 meters. It emits a sort of high-velocity, expanding, pulsing sound wave that can, and I am not exaggerating here, that can rupture all of your internal organs. <laughs> that is right. No injury on the outside, soup on the inside. I guess the good news here is that you're pretty much dealing with instant death, though. 
The weapon itself also has another strange bonus feature. Unless you share Geonosian physiology, well, it's really awkward to fire. So let's have a couple of you come on up here. Yep, just come on right up onto the stage here. Okay, now I want you to put your hand here and you put your flipper here. Well, I don't, I don't know what that's called. Just watch where you're pointing this thing. Awesome. See, it can be done, just not easily. I'm sure HR is not going to be thrilled that we just did that, but I mean, hey, education, right? Thank you very much for your help. You guys can go ahead and sit down now. And finally, we have a weapon that I spoke of in an earlier class about bounty hunting. What I'm holding here is a 10 Loss Syndicate DXR-6 disruptor rifle. I am definitely not allowed to have one of these things. They are banned nearly galaxy-wide because, frankly, they are just instant death machines. A disruptor rifle shoots a short-range beam which affects the target on a molecular level, turning it to ash. The word disintegration is typically used to describe the outcome, which is probably the key reason why it's banned. You can't investigate something that's not there anymore. At all. If a bounty hunter is carrying a disruptor rifle, he or she has no real intention of capturing the target alive. It works basically the same way as a blaster by exciting gases, but it does it on a massive scale. It's actually pretty inefficient because it sacrifices everything to increase the power to the max. So, you don't get a lot of shots off and you need to be about 10 meters away, but whatever gets hit in that range is gone. This is a fan favorite of criminal syndicates like the Black Sun, and you can really only get them directly from Tenloss, the company that specializes in disruptor tech. That's all I'm going to say about this thing, because I'm already going to have to lie to a lot of people if they find out that I have one. Okay, question time. Step up and introduce yourself. My name is Blomonti. I would like to know if there's a market for non-energy weapon rifles. Well, my Kaminoan friend, I'm going to make a guess as a fairly traveled famous person and say yes but with a but. There are many planets that have civilizations that use non-energy weapons, but they're nearly always cultures that haven't yet advanced to that point. For example, Tuscans on Tatooine still prefer a rifle called the 6-2 AUG-2, which was made by the Zerka Corporation. It fires a slug, which is pretty archaic, but the Zerka Corporation wouldn't keep making them if they couldn't make any money. So, if you're interested in supplying backwater planets with very specialized archaic weapons, then sure, I mean, you have a market, right? But nearly every civilization graduates to some sort of blaster technology simply because they are the most effective and efficient weapons out there. And there's a ton of them, so they're pretty easy to acquire. Okay. Um, there appears to be some Gamorians gathered at the door, and they're pointing at me, so no homework this week, and I will see you all later. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. 
You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sunny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sunny Ravencourt on mounted weapons. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really, I truly appreciate these warm welcomes you give me. I'm happy to say that a number of you found my missing statue. Remember that one? Some of you made a statue in my likeness, which I put in the hallway. Well, wouldn't you believe it, but a few of you found that same statue in the lower levels in a trash compactor. (laughs) Can you believe that? I wonder how it could have possibly gotten there. Either way, thank you so much for retrieving that. I've secured it to the floor in the staff lounge with Durasteel bolts this time to make sure that it doesn't accidentally fall into another incineration chute. Who knows how these things can go missing? I was just asking Dean Gambino if she'd seen it, and she just walked away from me. I assume it was her searching that must have led you to it. I'll have to thank her for that after class. I know, I'll invite her to the staff lounge to show her its new location. Perfect. Well, today, we're going to look at some of the most well-recognized but least understood class of weapons, and that's what I'm going to call mounted weaponry. Now, of course, some of these aren't technically mounted to anything, and they're freestanding, but presumably the part that shoots stuff is so big that it requires it to be mounted to something. Hence, mounted weaponry. Basically, these are weapons that are just too big to be carried by any running soldier. A lot of you are decently familiar with historic Galactic Empire-era ships, and it doesn't get much more famous than an Imperial-class Star Destroyer. Some of you are probably familiar with a bunch of other Galactic-era starships, but I'll bet you aren't familiar with the turbo laser that was stacked by the dozen on all of these, dealing out the real damage. And that, my students, is the Tame and Bach XX9 Heavy Turbo Laser. The XX9 Heavy Turbo Laser has a very distinctive sound. Obviously, I could not bring one of those into this room, but here is a hollow recording of that sound. Oh, no, wait. That is the sound of a Death Star blowing up. Um, here it is. Nope, I'm sorry, that is another Death Star blowing up. Okay, here it is. Yeah, that's it. I I don't know what it is about that sound, but it is just perfect. I just love that sound. Is that weird? I mean, I don't know, that might be weird, but it is just a perfect sound. So what is a turbo laser? Well, we already discussed that a blaster is just firing high-energy plasma bolts created by exciting energy-rich gases, right? If you're confused by this, go back and listen to my lecture on blaster pistols. It was excellent, of course. A blaster bolt and a laser, the terms are pretty much used synonymously. A blaster shoots blaster bolts, a blaster shoots lasers, whatever. It's all the same in the common vernacular. The turbo laser, think turbo blaster if that helps, that's a two-stage process. 
The first stage makes the blaster bolt just like normal. And then the second stage is that that same bolt is passed through another round of high energy gases, giving it a whole bunch more potency. It's that second stage that really gives it the magic. It works out, though, to be almost triple the power. Now, consistent with the Galactic Empire strategy on things, more is always better. Your average Imperial-class Star Destroyer had 60 of the XXR heavy turbo lasers mounted on it. They did a bit of creative engineering to limit the movement on the barrel so that you couldn't accidentally fire a couple of those rounds into your own hull by aiming down too far. And I should clarify, when I say rounds in plural, I mean that the XXR has two barrels. The whole thing looks like two giant cubes, one stacked on top of each other, and the top cube can rotate because it has the barrels on it. It's a pretty simple design when you really look at it. So there's always upside and downside to a weapon like this, right? The upside is that they have tremendous damage both in space and as an orbital bombardment. If you have 60 turbo lasers on your Star Destroyer, you're a pretty feared spacecraft that can blow just about anything out of the sky. The other upside is that they're controlled remotely by somebody who is nowhere near danger. The downside to this whole thing is that the mechanism to move the barrels and control all that power, well, that's pretty complicated. And so it can inherently break down pretty easily. And since they're on the outside of a ship, well, you know, that's not getting fixed very quickly if it does break. Also, they sacrificed a lot of agility for power with the XXR. They didn't rotate very fast, so they weren't great at picking off individual fighters. These things were fabulous for blowing giant birds out of space, but not so good at swatting mosquitoes. The first Death Star had a million of these things, and it was ultimately blown up by an X-Wing that it just couldn't hit. Next up, let's take a look at one of the coolest looking mounted blasters ever. The Atgar 1.4 FDP Tower Laser Cannon. Now, that's a lot of words, so let's just call it the P-Tower. Some of you guys may remember this in the hollow vids of the Battle of Hoth between the Galactic Empire and the Rebel Alliance in 3 ABY. It's a little bit hard to describe, but if you think about a giant dinner plate the size of your outstretched arms, so a full wingspan, with a barrel coming out of the middle of the plate. It's mounted to a base, and in order to fire that cannon, you need to be behind the dinner plate to aim it. And once you've aimed your dinner plate at the target, it focuses all that concave energy out of the plate and out through the cannon barrel in one huge bolt. Functionally, it's, it's the same as any blaster. It's just a lot bigger. Now, the P-Tower, which incidentally doesn't look like a tower at all to me, well, it may have had its most famous day in history firing big blaster bolts at things at the Battle of Hoth, but it's hard to say that Hoth was its best day. First of all, it could only fire eight shots before a whole team of engineers had to change out the batteries. So those shots better count, right? Well, the Rebel Alliance was using it against AT-AT walkers, and the P-Tower bolts just bounced right off that thick armor. They could use it against the ground troops, but that's really not what it was meant for, and it takes a lot of energy and time to aim it. 
In short, one of the coolest looking weapons is most famous at the Battle of Hoth for being not effective whatsoever, which is really too bad. Okay, let's switch gears here for a little bit. Imagine you are on a hill. You've been told that you have to defend this location. Enemies could come from anywhere, but you're going to see them coming. Could I interest you in a mounted 360-degree heavy repeating blaster that can blaze out round after round after round of bolts big enough to take out a land speeder? I'll bet I could interest you in that. By taking an old Mersan munitions design, our good friends at Blastec give you the E-Web Repeating Blaster. E-Web is somehow short for Emplacement Weapon Heavy Blaster. I guess they just don't like the letter H for some reason. It's the same old story with this one, with a couple of small differences. It's got great firepower, and this thing moves around a lot faster than the other examples that we've seen, but it's still got the same issues. You can't carry this thing initially. It needs to be dropped off, and then you'll spend a good 15 minutes with two skilled operators to set it up and then fire. Moving it after that's done is apparently easier, and you can reassemble it in about five minutes, provided you can drag it to the next spot. But as far as simplicity goes, it's a pretty handy military tool that you can have in the bag for defense, right? You want to make a certain corridor a death trap? Well, how about setting up an e-web at the end of that thing? The E-Webs were really popular for the Galactic Empire, which should really tell you something about their ability to be mass-produced. All in all, highly effective weapon with a few typical drawbacks associated with all mounted weapons. And finally, we have something special. It is huge. It's a giant ball with a pointy little barrel coming out of it, and it's so power-hungry that you have to build a reactor 40 feet below it just to make it work. This is the DKY V-150 Planet Defender. Yay! Okay, seriously. If you are in need of a weapon that can fire from the ground into outer space and needs a crew of 27 to operate it, well, this is your cannon. And here's the best part. It fires ion bolts that can disable a Star Destroyer all from the comfort of your own base. Now, it's been a lot of classes so far, and we haven't really talked about ion cannons very much at all. Ion weapons use negatively charged ions to create a bolt that looks a lot like a blaster bolt, but behaves very differently. They really screw with electronics and shields. Ion cannons would largely be used to disable ships or vehicles before turbolasers would then step in and chew through the armor. In the case of the planet Defender, it was used in conjunction with the planet Shields. You'd use a firing computer to time out a quick drop of the planetary shield and then shoot out some ion blasts really fast to help disable the ships. And then you quick put the shields back up. The Rebel Alliance also used them heavily on Hoth to disable the Star Destroyers in orbit while the transport ships then flew right by them. Ion cannons are still in wide use today because we still rely on electronics. If you have something that can disable the shields and turn off the enemy's power, well, that's going to give you a massive advantage. And if you build a sphere big enough that its cannon can disable ships in orbit above your base, well, I mean, that's not bad either, right? Okay, I think we have time for one question today. 
Who's going to be up? Who's going to do it? Ah, Mr. Tronda still here has asked why there are only ion cannons and he hasn't ever heard of ion blasters. Well, to that I say there are ion blasters. And I'll bet you can guess what they're used on. Droids. (laughs) Think about it. If you're in the business of shooting droids, you don't really need regular blaster bolts. Although, I mean, those will work too. Let me rephrase. If you're in the business of capturing droids, well, then you absolutely need ion bolts. There's been some good ion blasters cobbled together over the years, mostly by scavengers. Not a lot of these in mass production because its use is pretty limited. I mean, you need to disable a droid, but not kill it. Probably to resell it to farmers or somebody local. I mean, who knows, right? Well, that's going to be it for today. Homework for next week is to take a regular blaster, if you have one, and see if you can't make that into a turbo laser. Have fun. What's the worst that could happen? Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached HoloNet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on exotics. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for the applause. I truly do love teaching this class. I need to apologize for the delay in getting some of you the signed copies of my Holonet dramas. I ran out of holodisks the other day and I couldn't copy any more of my dramas over. It was really a desperate spot, but thankfully our favorite Rodian Dean had some that she could share with me. Now, she wasn't actually in her office to offer those to me, but I'm sure she totally would have understood such a dire predicament, right? Thankfully, I found a few discs right in her desk, and I relabeled them once I copied my movies on top of whatever was on them. Honestly, I'd never even seen the holodrama Tricka's First Birthday, so it must not have been very good. I'll have to set a reminder to order her another copy of that along with some of my greatest hits. This is what I would consider to be a special lecture if I wasn't so sure that all of my lectures were special. What I'm trying to say is that I really enjoyed looking back into the archives to learn about some of these weapons. We are going to classify them as exotics. Now, we could probably slot all of these into some other categories, but whether by their nature or the way that they're used, I mean, these things just tickle me in a special way. I'd love to talk more about that, but I specifically remember a part of my contract with the university saying something about tickling, and I think I'm just going to avoid that entirely. The point is that these weapons I felt were so cool that they just needed their own lecture. And since I'm famous enough to teach what I want to teach, well, here we go. First up, it's not a lightsaber, and it's not a whip. Okay. Well, it is a whip. Okay, never mind. It's the light whip. 
A light whip is a plasma weapon, much like a lightsaber. But instead of having a focused straight beam, the light whip has a long, flexible blade. The way that that's accomplished was pretty ingenious, in my opinion. Instead of having one large crystal, there were as many as five small crystals in the hilt, which caused the plasma cells to lose their barriers, thus allowing the blade to move freely along a flexible path. The light whip was exotic because of its rarity. At certain times of galactic history, there were many, many Force users walking around doing Jedi and Sith things, but almost nobody had a light whip. Why? That's right! It is crazy dangerous! And not just to the opponent, but to the person wielding it. And on that note, let's fire this thing up! have any idea how hard it is to control a whip to the point that it's never allowed to touch you and if it does you're gonna lose an arm? Do you see this Colto bandage on my arm? When I told my boss and associate I was gonna bring in a real light whip to class he was seriously concerned. Something about how if I died he wouldn't get paid. So he gave me a regular whip instead and I immediately whipped myself. This thing hurts like a bantha. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but despite my convincing role in the classic holodrama, Jedi's Die Hard, I'm sure you all know that one, I don't actually have any ability to control the Force. I think you pretty much have to have that to use a light whip. And even amongst Force users, they were thought to be wildly dangerous. It also leads to another point, which is that their dangerous style was purely offensive. They were designed to kill an opponent who held a lightsaber. They were not designed to be defensive, which goes entirely against the Jedi Code. The Jedi Order of the Old Republic believed that lightsabers, those were peacekeeping tools. While a light whip held no peace, <laughs> it was a killing weapon 100%. Obviously, the users were almost exclusively Sith. The light whip was very good at exactly one task. Now, listen carefully, because this is probably the single most useful lesson that I've ever learned about weaponry. A weapon can trade efficiency for unfamiliarity. Okay, what this means is that if you have a highly efficient weapon, like say, a lightsaber in the hands of a skilled Jedi, well, then you're fine, right? Highly efficient weapon. Skilled user, life is good, A-plus performance. But a weapon like the light whip has flaws. It's dangerous to the user, it can't be used defensively very well, so why was the light whip so efficient at killing Jedi? Because you can trade efficiency for unfamiliarity. Nobody had any experience defending against a light whip because of how rare they were. They attacked at strange, unpredictable angles, usually in an all-out offensive fashion. And with lightsaber-type weaponry, well, it's a one-mistake, game-over situation. So the defender's unfamiliarity with the light whip, that caused a lot of problems. Making the light whip, a weapon that did have flaws, an A-plus performing weapon. 
Efficiency was traded for unfamiliarity. Historically, there have been a few wielders of the light whip, and frankly, they're probably remembered because they were the very few who wielded it with any success. About a thousand years BBY, there was a lady of the Sith named Githany who rose to some considerable power and was famous for the use of her light whip. She was probably the first known user, but she, like the entire Sith army of that time, was wiped out in the Battle of Rusan, ushering in what was known as the Rule of Two. That's a kind of a complicated situation there, and so we'll cover that in a future class. You don't see another light whip for nearly a thousand years until another Sith named Lumaya shows up with one. Hers even had that Cat Nine Tails variant that had multiple strands on it. Here's a final note. Remember how I said that the light whip gained a lot of advantage by unfamiliarity? Well, Lumaya fought so many battles with it that her opponents started to figure it out, making it inherently less unfamiliar. Well, one clever Jedi used two lightsabers, one shorter than the other. Remember when we were talking about the Shoto blade? We briefly mentioned that. Well, that was highly effective in defending against the light whip. And once that unfamiliarity was gone, well, now you have an inefficient weapon that's just frankly no good. Whew, that was more than I wanted to talk about the light whip, but I mean, come on, that thing is awesome. The next one is a request of one of the students who kept sending me hollow mails requesting that I talk about it. Here, in my hands, is a Ganderfee. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Now, the Ganderfee, or more commonly known as the Gaffy Stick, to the best of my knowledge, is exclusively used by a species on a planet called Tatooine. I think this weapon is a great example of how different species can evolve weapons that just work perfect for them. The species that I'm referring to are the Gorfas, but nobody really calls them that. They're referred to as Tuscans, or probably more offensively, Tuscan Raiders, since they are an absolute terror to the local farmers. So we're going to call them Tuscans. Incidentally, Tatooine has two sons and is crazy hot. You know what the farmers are actually farming there? Moisture. No, I'm serious. They farm moisture. They are literally farming the moisture out of the air. I can already see the confused look on a few of the Mon Calamaris in the audience. The gaffy stick is really a multi-tool. As you can see here, it is a long stick with a spear on one side surrounded by four short, fin-like blades at the end of the shaft pointing in each direction. Well, the spear is obviously for spearing, but those blades could also be used to chop or cut when you swing the stick down on something. At the other end is a 90-degree hook that has a large mace-like ball on it with a point in the middle. The ball is excellent for crushing, and the point was often dipped in sand bat venom. So to recap, you've got stabbing, cutting, smashing, and now poisoning. I'm sure if they could somehow get psychologically manipulating in there, they would have, but that's not really the Tuscan style. There's a lot of little variations in these specific elements because like any good tribal weapon, they were individually crafted from local materials and considered status symbols. 
you don't just buy a gaffy stick. You either make your own from whatever you can find on that dusty planet, or you take one off another Tuscan, and good luck with that. Anyway, that's the gander fee. I always encourage students to reach out with suggestions, so thank you for that, wherever you are. Oh, well, there you are. I'm going to take 30 seconds here and talk about something that got missed in earlier episodes that I just cannot abide going unmentioned, and that is the tractor beam. Yes, I realize that billions of ships have a tractor beam, but its use as a weapon was exceedingly rare. There was a Grand Admiral of the Galactic Empire around the time of 10 BBY who was incredibly clever. He was actually a chess, which made him very out of place at the time inside the Empire because it was almost exclusively comprised of humans. His name was Mithra Nuriodo, but he was known as Grand Admiral Thrawn at the time because nobody wanted to try to get his attention by trying to yell that mouthful. Thrawn learned early that propulsion in space makes a lot of noise and a lot of heat. It is easy to track an X-Wing or a TIE fighter blasting towards you. But let's say you're on a Star Destroyer. If you drop the nose a bit of that destroyer and then take your tractor beam and grab a hold of, say, one of Thrawn's favorite ships, the TIE Defender, well, you could use that tractor beam and sort of throw a cold, unpowered TIE fighter strategically into battle. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but he would use the tractor beam to grab his own ship and fling it forward. Now, that's hard to see in the backdrop of space unless you get really lucky and spot it visually. It's going to power up and join the fight when it feels like it's surprising the heck out of you. So just because something isn't intended as a weapon, like a tractor beam, doesn't mean that some clever admiral won't use it as one. Well, I'm getting close to the end of lecture time here, so do we have any questions from the audience? Just go ahead and put an appendage up, and the microphone droid will find you. Professor, I am Count Lohim, son of Duke Lohim. My homeworld is a moon of Iego, and we are beset by droids. What weaponry can be used to eradicate them? Hmm. This is an oddly specific request, and I'm sure that the university has some sort of stance on me offering advice on how to eradicate, but I'm famous, and so what do I care? Given that this is a history class, though, let's look at history to find the best answer. I don't think we're going to have to look very far. At the end of the Galactic Republic and the beginning of the Galactic Empire, around 19 BBY, well, there was an army known as the Separatists, and they were almost entirely comprised of droids. In one of the earliest battles on a beautiful planet called Naboo, where I personally have a summer home, there is a fairly unadvanced species known as the Gungans. Well, they don't really have any advanced technology, but what they did find is that the planet of Naboo can be traversed right through the planet core through waterways. And the Gungans are an aquatic species, so that worked nicely. Anyways, at the core, they found that they could harvest a sort of plasma goo. 
Naturally, anything that involves plasma means that it's eventually going to be weaponized. And so the Gungans did the simplest thing imaginable. They packed it up into balls and they hurled it at the enemy. <laughs> when the plasma ball goo things hit anything, they would explode and do tremendous damage to organic beings. But more importantly, they would absolutely short out droid circuitry. The Gungans developed weapons like the Atlatl and the Sesta, which were both basically delivery systems to hurl a ball of plasma goo at different ranges. So, I guess to answer your question, you could go to Naboo, travel to the planet core, harvest some plasma goo, pack it into a ball, and then throw it at the droids, shorting out their electrical systems. Or, you could do what everybody else in galactic history has done and just shoot them with a blaster rifle. <laughs> Points for style, though, if you go with the goo. Okay, that's gonna be it for class today. Homework for next class is to find something on campus and make an exotic weapon out of it. No boundaries on this whatsoever. Just take whatever you think you can get away with. Good luck. Welcome to the University of Coruscant. As part of your enrollment here, you have access to the attached Holonet recording. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on galactic history. You've selected a lecture by Dr. Sonny Ravencourt on superweapons, the Death Star. If you have any questions about this lecture or wish to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Everybody calm down. Before I begin, as an agreement with Dean Fertura, Fertura? Fertura, not a settlement in any way accepting fault on my part, I have agreed to read the following prepared statement before this lecture. I, Dr. Sonny Ravencourt, honorary, do I have to say honorary every time? I, fine. I, Dr. Sonny Ravencourt, <coughs> do hereby apologize for mispronouncing Dean Fortuna's name in previous lectures. This includes Dean Fortuna, Santana, Lablasta, Yomasta, and Gambino. Wow, I was really off on that last one. And I shall endeavor to better represent the fine academic history and professionalism expected of all University of Coruscant faculty and students. Go Sabres. End of statement. You guys have been so great to me these past weeks, and there is a big part of me that is sad to say that this is our last class together. Until next semester, at least, right? But to be honest, this has been fairly stressful, even for a Holonet star such as myself. In an attempt to relax a bit, well, I ordered a little something to help me unwind a little bit. It wasn't easy, but you gotta hand it to Wookie Ingenuity. They were able to install that steam tub right into my office. Now, they were a little bit concerned about the weight of it, but I assured them that they wouldn't have put my office directly above Dean Bananas if they were worried about that. It turns out that they started to fill it before they left. Now. 
since then, they've told me that I was right there when they said that I would need to turn it off. But honestly, I was just looking at that painting you guys made of me on that bantha. You know, I had to hang it in my office because the darn thing kept falling into the incinerator chute in the staff lounge. Anyways, there was quite a bit of water on the floor of my office after a few hours. But thankfully, it turns out that it drains pretty quickly and it goes somewhere. I mean, I'm a history teacher, not an engineer. Speaking of engineers, I'm going to have to ask them about where that does go. I saw a bunch of them before class heading over to talk to the dean. Well, I mean, regardless, it really has been a great semester. So... Here we are at the end. Think about all the spectacular weapons that we've seen and discussed. Weapons of all types and shapes and sizes. So what's left? Well, I mean, there's a lot that's left, but they only pay me to teach so many classes a semester, so you get what you get. But that doesn't mean that we can't go out with a bang, and we have seen a lot of things that go bang. There's a guy with a melee weapon, and then there's a guy with a blaster, but the next guy, well, he has a rifle, and the guy after that, a mounted weapon. Oh, look out, though. The next guy's got a ship, but he's flying against turbo lasers. Each thing is a little more deadly than the last, so where does this all end? There's always a bigger weapon. Right up until there isn't. This amazing galaxy of ours is full of light and wonder. It has produced art and music, the likes of which we could never consume all of. But with the light comes the dark. It has also produced some weapons that are so devastating that there just isn't anything more destructive. This category is the end, and I mean that in every sense of the word. I give you super weapons. Now, what makes a super weapon? As the famous Supreme Galactic Justice Pottership Stewardu said, I know one when I see one. And honestly, that's about as good as it gets. All of them can do extreme amounts of damage, no doubt, and that's usually on the planet ending scale. But they're not all gigantic. Now, some of them are, and honestly, if it made it into this category, it's too great in scope to be just crammed in with a bunch of other super weapons all into one lecture. So I'm going to switch this up a little bit and just talk about one of them. My favorite one. Measuring 120 kilometers in diameter, boasting an equatorial trench that was 503 kilometers long, that was no moon. It was a space station. It was Project Stardust come to life. Formerly known as the DS-1 Orbital Battle Station, it was the Death Star. But wait, you might say, wasn't there another Death Star that was even bigger? Like, say, a third bigger in diameter? No, I say. I much prefer talking about the first Death Star because one, it was the first. The first of something is always more interesting in a historical conversation. Nobody from a planet cares about who the second person was to discover a large landmass. Nobody cares who the second person was to climb a legendary mountain. And when it comes to Death Stars, I just don't care about the second one. I mean, they didn't even complete the thing. 
Yes, I mean, it was operational, I guess, but I mean, it didn't blow up any planets or travel in hyperspace. All it did was look half finished and shoot some ships. But the first Death Star? Well, that was just as much fact as it was legend, and it makes for an excellent history class. Most of the history of the Death Star is what I like to call agreed upon, meaning that most sources agree. I already gave you the 120-kilometer diameter and that crazy 503-kilometer trench, but it also had 10,000 turbo lasers, 2,500 ion cannons, and 738 tractor beam emplacements. I mean, with weapons like that, in that number, this thing was clearly designed for a large-scale attack. Some will say that it didn't consider a small one-manned fighter, but that seems like a crazy thing, right? I mean, a battle station that didn't consider a particular type of attack? I think it's really unfair to say that. It had somewhere between seven and 9,000 fighters on board and tens of thousands of support craft. Not only that, but the scale of putting a Star Destroyer on board the Death Star was like putting a crumb into your pocket. <laughs> Some statistics I actually find pretty humorous. While the Death Star housed almost 2 million people in 357 levels, it had an operating crew of 342,953. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure that at some audit they calculated that number and that's what they ran with. But, I mean, what if Stormtrooper Eddie calls in sick that morning? Well, I mean, I guess the super laser is going to have to wait until he gets back, right? Oh, and great. He took the keys to the hyperdrive home with him. <sighs> Nobody likes Eddie. The Death Star took approximately 19 years to complete. However, before you go congratulating a staff on the bang-up job, you should know that without delays, it should have taken two years to complete. If you're building a house and plan on having it done in two years, but it turns out that it takes 19, well, I mean, a lot of things are going to happen. First, somebody's getting fired. In the Galactic Empire at that time, that means killed. Fired means killed. I imagine a lot of people were fired over a 1,000% delay in completion time. Second, there is a reason that a delay like that happens. In this case, there was two reasons. The first was that they were working with brand new invented technology, and that technology was specifically related to the super laser. The Death Star wasn't just a mobile suitcase for ships and turbo lasers. It had a giant laser of its own, uh, the pretty poorly named Super Laser. Everything else on the Death Star was already known technology at the time that they built it. They just amped it up to ridiculous levels. They already knew that the hyperdrive would work. They just needed a really, really big one. But the Super Laser had never been seen before. If you believe in stories, the lead engineer Galen Urso was responsible for those delays, and he was actually doing it intentionally. That brings us to the next reason for the delays. Sabotage. Now, I do believe the sources when they talk about Galen Urso. Many sources say that Urso lost faith in the Galactic Empire and began to internally sabotage his own work particularly Project Stardust, which became the basis for the actual Death Star. 
delay after delay in the design of the super laser stretched out the completion until finally, I guess he was just forced to complete it, presumably under some sort of threat. He died at around the time of completion, so, I mean, that theory seems pretty logical. But the final thumb in the old eye stock of the Empire came after Urso's death. We all know that the Death Star was destroyed by the Rebel Alliance, and we all know that it happened as a result of some sort of chain reaction instigated by the Jedi Luke Skywalker. Honestly, not even the Galactic Empire, famous for their propaganda, was able to spin this thing in a positive light. You've all heard the story of how Skywalker somehow curved a proton torpedo 90 degrees down an exhaust vent, which hit the hypermatter reactor, causing it to blow up. But only recently is that story actually starting to make sense. And it comes back to our engineering friend Galen Erso. Urso had the ability both in ingenuity and in access to make the Death Star a balloon waiting to pop. And I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense. I refuse to believe that the same guy who engineered a laser that actually worked at the scale that you could blow up a planet could somehow unintentionally allow the whole Death Star to explode from one well-placed proton torpedo? And say what you want about the Death Star. The fact is that it worked. The first Death Star fired three times. It fired a limited power shot at the planet Jeddah and obliterated Jeddah City and thousands of miles around it. Then it inexplicably moved over the planet Scarif and completely wiped a high-security Empire facility out of existence. Remember, this was an Empire weapon. I would love nothing more than to find out exactly how that happened. And finally, the only time a Death Star ever truly demonstrated its true power, well, it completely blew up the peaceful and beautiful planet Alderaan. And we might as well end our story there, right? The first Death Star, in my mind, is really a metaphor for the entire galactic empire. Force and power on a previously unimagined scale, brought down instantly in the most unlikely of fashions. And speaking of the end, here we are. Well, I mean, almost. We can't really leave without a final question from the class, can we? Okay, who's gonna step up one last time? Hello, Professor. Well, if it isn't our young friend Blur Lightfire, how did you enjoy your classes this semester? I loved them. I don't think I'm gonna keep taking Wookiee cooking next semester, though. Yeah, I can't say that I'd recommend that to a human. Everything is a bit undercooked for my liking. Also, I am not a fan of hair. How can we help you today? What was your favorite weapon this semester? Well, this is a fantastic question, and I am always happy to talk about what I think. I'm going to have to go with the light whip. I'm just fascinated by it. I don't think I've ever read about a more dangerous weapon to both the user and the target. I mean, it's just an insane piece of tech, and 99.9% .9 of the people who are even capable of using the thing, meaning the Jedi, well, they're philosophically against the weapon itself. I mean, how crazy is that? I just, I love it. And so, my faithful companions, we have come to the end of our journey. 
It has been an honor and a privilege to guide you through an entire semester's worth of galactic history. Dean Fazuna and I have a meeting shortly to discuss my future here at the university, which can only mean that I'll be returning in the spring with a renewed vigor for education and presumably a larger salary. But before I go, I do have a gift for you all. Please look under your hover chairs and you will find your very own miniaturized Imperial Probe Droid. These were a favorite of mine, but you should be really careful with them because they do have a tendency to explode if you jostle them too much. Again, thank you so... Hey, look! Dean Philama has joined us for the last class. Please come down and say hello. Oh, watch your step for that box of probe droids. This concludes your selected lecture from the University of Coruscant. For all questions or to contact us, please visit universityofcoruscant.com.